This is what people need. Often what you have is the company did really well at the beginning. And then what happens is competitors piled into the market or, you know, or they caught up with you. So you had a thing that was really differentiating and then they caught up with you and whatever. And so it was clear at the beginning, but then at some point it became muddy. And then the companies didn't deliberately do positioning at the beginning. It just happened. It was just there. It was easy. It was obvious. But then we, you know, now we've moved on a few years and it's less obvious, but because we didn't do a process to figure it out at the beginning, we don't know how to do a process to figure it out now. So my work is really on that. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Today, I'm talking with and learning from April Dunford. April is an author and a consultant and a reformed CMO. The original book, which she wrote a few years ago called Obviously Awesome, is about positioning. And we were chatting today about a book that we've both read and she references in her new book, Sales Pitch. It's called The Jolt Effect. And if positioning is what marketing think, how relative to our competitors, how should we be talking about the differences inherent in our product and who cares about those? It's positioning. And then she's written one called Sales Pitch, which has just come out, which is really how did the sales team then take that to market? And she said in the past, so much of the work that she had done was very good work, but then stopped short as being as effective as it could be because sales didn't have a mechanism to take it to market. So we talk about all of that. We talk about where she came from, what what was her journey, CMO or marketing, head of marketing through CMO, and where did she see the challenge? How did the challenge of positioning show up? It was a problem she had to solve, really, because without positioning, her go-to-market strategies were ineffectual. So a fantastic conversation with April. Loads to be learned here about about positioning. It might make you feel slightly ill about your current positioning, and it might make you feel you need to do something about it, which is great. I very rarely meet people who have got their strategy nailed. And even if I have meet people who have a strategy which is nailed, very rarely meet people whose positioning doesn't need work to be more successful in the marketplace. So great conversation with April. I'm sure you'll love it. Hi, so I'm April Dunford. I'm a positioning expert. I work with tech companies, generally B2B tech companies. And my focus is really specifically around helping companies understand how they win in the market and then how to take that positioning and translate it into a sales pitch that helps you win business. Excellent. 
because most of the stuff we get is just feature, 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 feature. So all of that so boring. True. Why? Why is it that BMW can talk about passion and B2B tech companies just go feature, feature, feature? Feature, feature, feature. I think there's a handful of things that, that reasons why we fall into that trap. So one is it's easy talking about features. I mean, we, we you know we're tech people. We live in the tech world. It's we kind of live and die by features. We spend a lot of time talking about the roadmap and what features are going to go on the roadmap. And so it's easy to just talk about features in sales. I think there's a couple of things going on. One, I think the sales team often does not believe that it is their job to talk about the competition for starters, and therefore the rest of the market. Because one, you know, we're biased and customers won't believe what we say. Uh, and, and two, we don't want to look like we're bashing the competition. So competition is off the table. We should never talk about them. So they're gone. So that leaves, we're just going to talk about ourselves. Well, then there's this idea that, well, you know, what is our job here? Is our job to actually show you the product or is our job to communicate our point of view on the market and why you should pick us versus the other guys? What the customer really wants you to do is to explain why pick us over the other folks. But a lot of companies believe that their job is to show the product and the customer makes up their own mind. Oh. <laughs> it's just the facts, Jax. So there's if there's 20 drop-down menus, we're going to click on every one and we're going to walk through everything. And then, and then that's it. And then it's like, okay, now you folks make up your own mind and oh. come back and tell us. And so I think we're missing a big opportunity there. I, I just remember the last software video I watched a client do. And he said, so this is how you log in. And you're like, no, really? Honestly, the, our competitors don't have... Yeah. Why are we showing the that? competitors don't have a login. There's nothing differentiating about that. Everybody logs in. Like, it's all the same. <laughs> Why are we doing that? I don't know. <laughs> um, let me step you, step you back from your new book, Sales Pitch, to um, undeniably awesome. <laughs> it's it's obviously awesome. awesome. Which obviously um, <laughs> it's good. I should have called it that. Undeniably, awesome. It uh, sounds better. That sounds better. And Remember you there, you... we're talking about uniqueness and and getting to unique. So yeah. maybe you just give people a quick run through of that before we get into the sales pitch stuff. Because for sure. So my background is as a positioning expert, and so when I say positioning, people often don't really understand what I mean by that. So positioning in my you know, in my world, positioning defines how your product is the best in the world at providing something, some value that a well-defined set of customers cares a lot about. So that's kind of a mouthful. But what we're really doing in positioning is we're getting really super tight on who do we actually compete with? So that includes the status quo uh, and it includes anybody else that ends up on a short list against us in a sales process. Put another way, it's what would the customer be doing if you didn't exist? So we need to, un we need to understand that and we need, to, we need to be really tight on that. And then we need to understand, well, what makes us different than that? So what capabilities do we have that are differentiating? And then importantly, how do those capabilities translate to value for the customer? So a key part of positioning is what is our differentiated value or the value that we can deliver to a customer that no one else can. And then, of course, not all customers care about that value in the same way. So we need to get a tight definition around who cares a lot about this value because that's our definition of a good fit customer. And then lastly, we need to understand what is the market category that we, in, that we 
are, are intending to win. And so we have those five component pieces. So for the last eight years, I've been working with B2B tech companies, helping them get really tight on that. And the immediate output of that is you get really tight messaging on the marketing side. Here's why you should pick us versus the other guys. But what I discovered in doing that work is that that work often didn't translate over to the sales pitch. So marketing would be really sweating the words on the website and how do we talk about our value proposition and how do we make sure everybody understands how we're differentiated. And then you, and then the, the lead ends up over at sales and sales is like, here's how we log in. <laughs> and so what I realized is that if we don't actually translate that positioning into a sales pitch, then we're kind of dead in the water. But I do consider positioning to be my main thing. I just think a good sales pitch is a story version of our positioning. When you describe that to me, see, in my mind, I've got this cascading Roger Martin's strategy framework. Where do we play? How do we win? And how is that different to being unique? How is that different to the positioning that that you outline? Yeah, like positioning versus strategy. Like, here's how I look at it. In most of the tech companies I worked at, we had a vision. And the vision was the all singing, all dancing thing we were going to be in 10 years. It was usually the thing we sold to the VCs. (laughs) So we went in and raised money and we sold them on the vision. In 10 years, we're going to have all this data. We're going to do all these things. And it's going to be amazing in 10 years. And that was the reason why people invested in us. And then we had the thing that we were today, which was not that. It was the kind of crappy version of it. Step one in our mission to getting here. And usually we had a series of steps and there was, and that was our strategy. So our strategy was, I'll give you an example. I worked for a company, we were um, in the CRM space, but our initial market that we focused on was investment bankers. And so at the beginning we were CRM for investment bankers, but that was not our plan. Our vision was to be CRM for any large enterprise. That's what we raised money on. That's why the VCs wrote us a check. And so our strategy was to start with investment banking because we could win there. We had special value that we could deliver to investment bankers. And while we were selling on that, we were building out the product so that we could then move to be, then move to uh, retail banking. And then we were going to shift the positioning at that point and we would be CRM for banking, not just investment banking, banking. And so that would be step two. And then we were going to build out a bunch of extra functionality. And after we're really good at banking, we would then move into insurance. And at that point, we would be CRM for financial services. And then if we were successful in winning insurance, the idea was, well, now we're a great big company. We can then go on and challenge the market leader and be CRM for enterprise. So that series of steps and our plan to do that in my mind, that was the strategy. The strategy was we're here, they were here, they were here. At every step on the strategy, we had the positioning, which was the why pick us versus the other guys right now, which we fully expected to be different a year from now, two years from now, three years from now. So I kind of see it different that way. Like some people will say, what it is is our go-to-market strategy, if you want to get technical about it. But it isn't the same as our overall business strategy, which tends to be something that actually the positioning, there's a built-in change to the positioning and the positioning, the idea is we're going to evolve over time until we eventually become this thing that the VCs wrote us to check to be. In many cases, either of those things would be better than what we have at the moment. <laughs> right. <laughs> and putting, the, putting them together yes. sounds like a really compelling idea. When you put together sales pitch, then walk us through the, maybe you could say, 
how do you get from where we are today, which is people turning up and showing the log on screen and instead giving them a way in which they can interpret the the well-constructed positioning and take it to market? In my opinion, most folks are doing this product walkthrough thing and they're not really thinking about answering the question, why pick us versus the other guys? So if we really wanted to answer the question, why pick us over the other guys, we would orient the pitch around our differentiated value, which is this is what we can do for your business that no one else can. So in the positioning exercise, we've defined this differentiated value. If we want to do a really good job of pitching, we need to do two things. So one is instead of having the feature function walkthrough thing and showing them all the features and pretending that all the features are the same and that, you know, all these features are special to us, they're not. Our competitors have 90% of the same features that we do. We're going to focus in on, look, the reason you want to pick us is because we're the only company that can do this plus this plus this. Now I'm going to show you a demo how we do those three things. So that's the first part is we want the demo part to focus on that. Now, for most companies, that differentiated value requires a little context. A lot of times the customer doesn't really understand why your differentiated stuff is is important to them or why they should care about that. So we need a little setup in the pitch that helps companies understand that. So I could give you an example. You want me to give you an example? So I worked with a company called Help Scout. And they're in the customer success space. So they have software for doing customer support. So think Zendesk or whatever. But when they started that company, they were very specifically focused on e-commerce businesses. Now, e-commerce businesses are a little bit different in that they don't have stores and they don't have salespeople. So one of the few places that an e-commerce business actually gets to interact with a customer is in support. So what the research shows is that If you deliver an amazing customer experience in support, it can really change the economics of your e-commerce business. So great support experience drives repeat business, it drives loyalty, it drives multiple purchases, all that kind of stuff. A terrible support experience does the opposite. They'll never shop with you again. They'll never talk to you again. It's bad. So... Help Scout decides they're going to build customer support software just for these folks. So the way they do it is they make it so that the customer is getting an amazing experience. Now, most customer support software was not built for that. Most customer support software was built to get you off the phone fast because they see support as a cost center. Your cell phone company, for example, is not trying to give you an amazing customer support experience. They're trying to drive you to the FAQ or low cost channels or the, you know, the chat bot thing. They want you not talking to a person. So very different philosophy. Now there's two ways I could pitch, um, help scout. I could do the pitch where I just log on and show you all the features. So it would look like this. Oh, Hey, uh, here's how you log on. Here's how to look how easy it is. It looks like an inbox and we could do all this stuff. Um, you know, and here's our features. You know, we get assignments, priorities, whatever, whatever. And I keep going until I run out of time, basically. Does that differentiate me against Zendesk? Not really. They have most of those features too. Like just on a feature function thing, it doesn't actually sound all that different. Does it differentiate me against what the little e-commerce guys are doing, which is usually just like a shared inbox? Not really. It kind of looks like a shared inbox too. So you might get to the end of that pitch and say, I don't know. I don't know how this is any different. Or I could pitch it like this. I could walk in and say, hey, e-commerce business, we work with e-commerce business. I'm going to show you the demo, but first like 
we, we've noticed something about e-commerce businesses. And what we've noticed is that e-commerce businesses think about support differently because the data tells us that given an amazing customer experience can result in more repeat business, more customer loyalty, whatever. Most e-commerce businesses will say, yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. We do want to deliver an amazing customer experience. Okay, great. Now look, you got choices here. We're not the only game in town. And so what we've seen is most folks will start with a shared inbox, which is great because it's really easy to use and everybody knows how to do it. But the problem is when your business is growing, you're going to need some support functions like assignments, prioritizations, and that's bad. Now you got to migrate. And what are your options? Well, it's help desk software. The problem with help desk software is, you know, it does all the things, has all the features, but it's designed to take cost out of customer support. So it'll do things like, you know, now your support, now, you know, now your person isn't Dominic anymore. They're ticket five, four, six, <laughs> and they're going to try to drive ticket five, four, six to the FAQ or something else. It's not designed to deliver an amazing customer experience. So in a perfect world, if you were an e-commerce business, you'd have a solution that would allow you to do support that's as easy as a shared inbox, but it has all the fancy bells and whistles so you don't have to migrate off of that. And it would be designed from the ground up to deliver an amazing customer experience. We want yes. that, right? Now you're the e-commerce business. If you say yes at that point in the pitch, I go, great, let me show you how we do that. Like the yes. deal is mine at that point. All I got to show, because you just agreed to something only I can do. And then I say, great, now I go into the demo and I say, okay, Easy to use as an inbox. Let me show you the inbox. Look at it. It looks just like an inbox. All your people know how to use it. It looks amazing. But it also has all these advanced features. Like here's how you do prioritization. Here's how you do assignments. Here's how you do some things. And then lastly, look, delivers an amazing experience. Now the customer gets to choose which channel they use to do support with you. The customer remains Dominic and not ticket 547, you know, and then so we show all that stuff. So the second version is designed to answer this question, why pick us over doing what you're doing today, which is the shared inbox? Why pick us over Zendesk? It answers that question. So you can see that that pitch works way better than just saying, I'm just going to show you all the features like they're all the same and you figure it out. And it starts with a philosophical alignment, right? contextual alignment before That's we exactly come all it. the way down and we never show any software. That's exactly it. We start with our point of view on the market. Like Help Scout's point of view on the market is it's really important to deliver amazing customer service if you're an e-commerce business. And if I can't get you aligned to that, like if you don't care, if the customer comes in and says, no, man, this is just a cost center. We, we just want to, you know, we just want to do this. Then we disqualify that person at that point. Because you know what? Zendesk yeah, could do that well, better. But if you care about that, well, that, i I, all I got to do is wake you up to the fact that you care about that and those other help desk guys do not. <laughs> and so if that's what you want, you're going to have to come get it from us. Just going back to the CRM for investment bankers, was that yeah. was that deliberate or was that, an, was that accidental? No, okay. it was totally so it was accidental. A, like, it's got to be so somebody who it, likes our product. Let's, let's find them. <laughs> It was totally accidental. And in fact, a lot of the companies that I work with, uh, when we do the positioning, the product was not actually designed from the outset to deliver on that positioning. We sort of wingled our way into it through a series of pivots and then fell into, hey, this is who loves our stuff and this is why and we should run at that. If I take the company that I talked about, the CRM for investment banks, was a company that I worked at called Jana Systems. 
And so for the first 10 years, 10 years, that company was in existence. They had tried a bunch of different things, but for the most part, they were positioning themselves as CRM for enterprise, like any large enterprise. And the problem with that was that there was a $2 billion revenue company that was the absolute king of CRM for enterprise at the time. This was before, this was while Salesforce was still selling to the low end of the market. The king of that market was a big company called Siebel. So we would go in and we would pitch and say, hey, we're, we're enterprise CRM and they're enterprise. So people would say, so how are you better than Siebel? And the answer was, we kind of weren't. Like we, <laughs> they had way more features than us. They had way more customers than us. They had way more revenue than us. They had a celebrity CEO that everybody knew that had written a bunch of books. Like, I mean, we were just not as good as them in any way, except um, we, had, we had a feature that they didn't have that they couldn't copy. The problem was we didn't understand what the value of that feature was. So we showed it in demos. Every time we'd come in and they, they'd say, so how are you better at Siebel? we said, we got this thing and we'd show it. And it was this ability and it looked good in a demo. And it was this ability to model relationships in a different way than any CRM in the market. So we could model many to many relationship. Most CRM, the people only have a relationship yeah. to their company and that's it. Well, we could we could model a relationship even if it was beyond the company. The problem was we didn't know we didn't know what the value of that was. It just looked good, so we showed it to people. And we'd say, "Well, we got this thing," and then the customer would look at it and get all squinty, and then they would say, mm, "What do you use that for?" We'd say, "Anything you want." <laughs> And then they would be confused. And then and then they'd say, what else you got? And we'd say, well, how much budget you got? We could drop the price to that. <laughs> and win a few. So this was this was bad. Everything was bad. And how we got out of this was a uh, was was not smart positioning. Had I known what I know now, um, I we could have figured out how to get out of it. But at the time, uh, how we got out of it was just luck. And what happened was we hired a rep. And it's a funny story because, you know, the CEO of that company was notoriously mean to salespeople. I think because salespeople were never meeting his expectations because, you know, we just weren't selling anything. And so we were always turning over in the sales department. And so we had this guy come in for an interview to be a sales rep. And my CEO was always mean in these interviews. So this guy comes in and my CEO is banging on the table and he's like, you give me one good reason we should hire you to be a sales rep at my company. But this guy was from New York, so he had a little bit of attitude. And so he just leaned right over, got right up in my CEO's face. And he says, buddy, I'll tell you why you're going to hire me because my buddy is the head of investment banking at Goldman Sachs and I'm going to get you a meeting. And we're like, ooh, <laughs> hired. <laughs> so we, we hired the guy. And then he got us a meeting at the CEO with the, with the head of investment banking at Goldman Sachs. So I tag along for that meeting. We go in, we show the thing like we always do. And the guy freaks out and he starts asking all these questions. He says, well, wait, so does that mean if two guys sit on a board together, but they actually work at different companies, you could model that. And we're like, yeah. And he said, so wait, like if two guys belong to the Harvard club, but they work at different companies, you could model that. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, wait, 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 I got to get the vice presidents. He runs down the hall, gets some vice presidents, come back. And he says, show them the thing, <laughs> show them the thing. And so we, we demo the thing. And then, and then they start asking the same question. They're like, wait, so if they belong to the same golf club, can we, you know, do the thing or whatever? Like, yeah, you can model that in the system. And they start freaking out, jumping up and down and whatever. And we close the deal. And this never happened to us before. Like somebody gets so excited. So then we got this thought in our head that maybe the investment bankers really love our stuff. 
So we go get a meeting with another investment bank. Same thing happens. Like we show the thing, we explain it. Bankers get all excited, jumping up and down, we close the deal. What we discover is the value of this thing, this feature, was that there is a process in, in investment banking called reason to call. So this means you go out and have lunch with some dude that is maybe going to buy a bunch of stuff from you. And then you go back to the office and you need a reason to call the next person to get them to go out for lunch. Well, if you knew that that guy knew these three other guys because they sit on a board together or they're in a club together or something, then you could call. That's a reason to call and say, hey, I just had lunch with John. He was very excited about this thing. Uh, you should have lunch. You know, so it's 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 a key thing in their sales process. So we could solve that problem, drive a lot more revenue. Once we figured that out, then we started pitching to investment banks. Everything's amazing. So revenue starts going up like this. But importantly, back in the office, we started having this conversation like, are we enterprise CRM or are we CRM for investment banks? And I'll tell you, internally, it took us a while to get our heads around that. Like at the beginning, everyone was like, well, wait a second. Like, what if a telecom calls us? Are we not going to do business with them now? That's bad. And we're like, nobody calls us, buddy. Like nobody, like, like, like no one calls. We're not giving anything up here, man. We haven't been making any money for 10 years. And you don't really hate it with the investors. The board hated it, hated it. And so we had to explain to the board this vision strategy thing. Because they were like, CRM for investment bank. Like, how many investment banks are there? Like, you're not going to make any money doing that. That's not big enough. And we'd say, no, no, no. We're going to do investment banking first. And then once we get investment banking, we're going to use that to get into retail banking. And then we're going to be CRM for banking. And then we're going to use that to get into insurance. Then we're going to be CRM for financial services. Then we're going to be enterprise CRM. Then we're going to kick those Siebel guys' ass. And then we're going to be enterprise CRM. So it's the same thing we sold you on. Don't worry about it. And so that's how we convinced the board. And then we did the shift in positioning and it was absolutely transformational for the business. Like we went from a little under 2 million revenue to just over 80 million revenue in about 18 wow. months. Exactly. And the best part was we never got into a head to head with Siebel again. It was so cool. So we would come in and we would say, hey, we're CRM for investment banks. And the bankers would be like, but wait a second. Isn't that Siebel? Like, how is that different than Siebel? And we'd like, oh, Siebel. We love those guys. They're amazing. So big, so successful, so many customers. Amazing. They're like the world's greatest general purpose CRM for like, I don't know, call centers and stuff, but not you. Well, for Wall Street, you need something special. Let me show you this thing, right? And then we would just cut them out. So all of a sudden we're selling like crazy. We're selling all the investment banks in New York, big deals too. And then we go to the UK and Australia and Switzerland. So we're selling all the investment banks. We're starting to get into retail banking. And then the end of the story is that Siebel got so mad, we're kicking their tail all over the place that they came and acquired us for $1.7 billion. Brilliant. That's a good outcome. Yeah, it was a good outcome. The board was happy. You know, the board was all like, how are you going to make money? How are you going to make money on this little niche, you know, lifestyle business? We're yeah, like, that's how. We get early to the exit. Brilliant. At the time, it was, I live in Canada. At the time, it was the biggest acquisition of a software company in Canadian history. Fantastic. Well done. And that was, yeah. so that's how you got started on positioning. 
It was not the first one where I was involved in a positioning thing, but it was pretty early in my career. Like I was pretty, I was pretty young at that time. We were all pretty young. And uh, so after that acquisition, uh, I ended up running a division, like marketing and product for a division inside Siebel. And we repositioned a bunch of stuff in there. And then every company I went to after that, like if things were mushy, we'd do a repositioning. So eventually I became sort of like the positioning lady. Like that was part of the reason why you hired me was because I knew how to do positioning and I'd done it a lot. And it's sort of a weird specialized skill. And so then when I got sick of being inside companies and decided I wanted to go do consulting, it just made sense for me to just carry on and do this positioning thing. So now I do it with companies one-on-one. Yeah. And so you're always trying to find a thing that seems to be eluding them that somebody cares about and narrowing, narrowing the their focus just to that. And all, exactly. I mean, when you were talking there and saying, look, buddy, nobody's calling us. I have this conversation all the time. People turn up and I say, what do you do? We're a, we're a small business and we do everything for everybody. And it's like, oh God, does the phone ring? No, never rings. That's a surprise. <laughs> but they, they still, they still argue about, but just think about what I'm giving up. And it's like, but you're not giving anything up, right? please, please. I'm not giving up anything. Not giving up anything. Like I think that companies need to need to think about the short term more in it, when it comes to marketing and sales. I think where people get really stuck is this idea that well, if I'm if I say I'm that, I can never be anything else, and it's not true. It's not true. All the all the companies you look at, like do you know how Salesforce got started? They were CRM yeah. for SMBs. CRM for SMBs. It was, remember it was first three seats were free and they only aimed at companies that had less than 20 salespeople. Are they that today? Of course not. Well, because they had, in those businesses, there were, there was no IT person to say no. And so it's like, we need to get, we need to get breadth. And then some of those companies will scale and stuff will happen. Well, and they, and they yeah. moved up market as well. Like I, I you know, and the, it was genius positioning because the reason you couldn't do CRM back then is because you didn't have an IT department to to, to install the thing and keep it running and everything. And they showed up and said, no IT, no problem, no software. You buy our stuff. But no big company was touching that thing at the beginning. But the positioning shifted over time. So people get so worried that, you know, we're going to say we're CRM for investment banks and we'll never be anything else. Not true. We're going to be CRM for investment banks and we're going to be CRM for financial services and then we're going to be CRM for this. Any big company, you know, their positioning has shifted tremendously over time. And so people get worried like, oh, we're going to be in a bucket and we'll never get out. New prospects don't care. They they didn't know what bucket you were in before. (laughs) You change it next year. No problem. Like, no problem. Uh, what are some of the favorite positioning things you've done? Well, so that one, you know, that one where we went from investment banking to whatever was a really like, that's probably the biggest shift in positioning in terms of having an immediate impact on revenue. But what an early one that I did was we had this thing that was a, it was a database, but it was we kind of thought of it as like a spreadsheet on steroids. Like it was like a spreadsheet that could run SQL queries. We were super nerdy at that company. And so we thought, doesn't everybody want a spreadsheet that can run SQL queries? 
And this was ages ago, back when if you wanted an SQL database like Oracle, you you had to have big hardware to run that thing. It was very complicated to get it installed and tuned and running. And so we were going to give you this database. It was just like that, except you could install it on any device. It took up almost no uh, resources. You could just go click, 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 install the thing. But it kind of ran this subset of SQL. So if you wanted it to, if you wanted to write at a store procedure or trigger or something, you could do it just like you did it with the big database. And it was a total flop. So we launched it. We talked to all kinds of customers and everybody was like, yeah, yeah, we want that. And then we launched it and everyone was like, I don't know why I would use this. And so no one used it. So we sold a couple of hundred copies of it and nobody used it. And then I got hired and got assigned to this product. And my job was to kind of shut it down. That, that was sort of my job. But the f- step one to shutting it down was... I was supposed to call everybody and find out if they were using it or not, because this was not SaaS software. This was on-prem. So we didn't know if anybody was any using it. So I was supposed to call everybody, find out if they were using it or not. And then, you know, we figure out who was going to be really sad when we shut them off. So I called a whole bunch of companies. And what I found was the vast majority didn't even know they had it. Like they were like, no, we don't have that thing. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you bought it uh, February 12th. I got it here on the spreadsheet. And they're like, Oh yeah, yeah, we bought that thing, but then we never used it. It was stupid. We didn't know what to do with it. I'm like, okay. And it, it literally, like I talked to a hundred companies, like 92 were we didn't even know we had it. But the ones that did, like, were like, you will pry this from my cold dead fingers. They're like, we love this thing so much. It's so amazing. And I'm like, what are you doing with it? And they're like, well, we're putting it on mobile devices. And then we're sending those devices out to the field to do something. And then the device comes back and we're having it sync up with the Oracle database at headquarters. And back then, nobody had a, nobody had a database that could do that. Uh-huh. And so we found five or six customers doing that. So I go back and I report to the bosses, good news, bad news. If we shut it off, only five people are going to cry. <laughs> but they're going to cry a lot. <laughs> and here's what they're doing. And then we had this idea, well, maybe we take a run at that. And now if you think about that, that was really different. That was, we were selling it onesie twosie off the website, zero touch. This was going to require a sales team to go out and sell to the whole field service organization or the field sales organization. So it would need different pricing, different go to market, everything else. So we hired one sales rep and we tried it and the sales rep sold something like 3000 seats in a month. And that, and previous entire year we had sold 200 and so we're like, oh, <laughs> this looks good. So then we hired some more salespeople and then, and then we went crazy. And that thing sold like, it was insane. And so then we got acquired by a big database company at the time called, uh, called oh, yeah. Sybase. And so Sybase acquired us and the thing got renamed as iAnywhere. I don't know if you remember that, but at its peak... That product was on 80% of the cell phones in the United States. Like it was an incredibly successful product. It was doing hundreds of millions of revenue at its peak, like all in, if you add up all the revenue that product did over its lifetime, they just got sunsetted last year uh, over its lifetime with well over billion revenue. And we almost killed it because we were like, no, nobody likes it. <laughs> but so this, this shift in positioning turn this thing that was a nothing into something that was cool. And so that got me really thinking about how do we do this in a systematic way? Like how do we 
not thrash around? Like, how do we not have that mistake in the beginning that says, oh, we think we're a spreadsheet on steroids, but we're actually an embeddable database for mobile devices, which is really different. And so the way to do that has kind of been my life's work. And, and if we were smarter, we'd have seen it earlier. Like we could have said, well, you know, who do we get compared to? We get compared to a spreadsheet, obviously. We get compared to Microsoft Access and the janky little things people put on their PCs. But we also get compared to big databases like Oracle and Sybase. And then what do we have that they don't have? Well, you know, takes doesn't take up a lot of resource, runs SQL, which makes it better than a spreadsheet or Access, which also makes it compatible with the big enterprise thing. And so then we would ask ourselves, well, so what? What's the value of that? And had we gone through that exercise, the so what would have been, oh, well, you can have a thing over here that syncs with your enterprise database. And then you'd say, well, so what? Well, what if the thing goes out, out on the road? Like, what if it's not in the office? That's really cool. Like, nobody has that. So what would that enable? That would enable you to do a whole bunch of stuff on mobile devices that today you just simply cannot do. And so had we gone through that exercise, we'd have come to that conclusion way faster without having to just luck into it. Same thing with the same thing with the our CRM for investment banks. Had we gone through that thing, we would have said, "Okay, who's our competition? It's Siebel. What do we got that they don't have? Well, it's this many to many relationships thing." And then you're like, "Well, so what? Like, what's the value of that?" Well, the value is you can model relationships that don't depend on the company. Well, who cares about that? In investment banking, they care about that a lot. Yeah. So anything that's a real relationship-driven sales process. They care a lot. So we would have, I think we would have landed on that eventually had we gone through that process. So the companies I'm working with, we're running that process just like that. Well, so who do you compete with? What do you got that's different? And then you, what's the so what? Like, so what? So you have that thing, so what? And then we're asking the question, well, who cares about that? And so we're basically building a positioning bottom up from what you're already doing in the markets where you're already winning. Do you ever go in and they've got nothing? And there's nothing. I get this question all the time. Everybody asks me this question, like, what if there's nothing? Here's the thing. If you're in market, so let's say you're in market and you're doing 5 million revenue. You're selling stuff every day. People are picking you every day. Maybe you don't know why, but they're picking you every day. And they're doing their homework. They're they're looking at alternatives. Like most people in B2B, they're not just picking the first thing they come across. They're making a short list and they're picking you. So why? Now, sometimes the company will say, well, you know, they're picking us because we're nice. You know, I, I get this a lot. They're picking us because we're the salespeople will say, we're picking us because we just got great salespeople. <laughs> or they're picking us because our support is so good. And I'm like, well, wait, do they actually experience your support before they pick you? And the answer is no. <laughs> they're like, okay, well, that might be why they renew. But I don't think that's why they picked you. And then we go through the thing. And then usually what we find out is there's a combination of things. Like there's these competitors over here and you're different from them because you have A, B. But then there's these competitors over there and you're different from them in a different way. You got X, Y. And the com companies are picking you because you're the only one that has the combination of A, B, X, Y. And so when the companies come, they'll say, well, we're not differentiated at all because these guys do the same thing we do and then these guys do the same thing as you do. Ha, ha, ha. But you're the only one that does this combination of this thing. And so often it's that. And we just need to get really tight on that and then take that and put it right in the middle of what we talk about marketing and sales instead of having it be an afterthought. And then get the salespeople to tell that contextual story before they 
show the login that's screen. right that's right like why does that why does a b x y matter like here's why it matters it matters for these reasons and so if you understood this you would always pick us instead what's happening in a lot of these companies is the customers are doing all the work to figure that out themselves <laughs> and so imagine you're selling 5 million 10 million 20 million revenue with a customer doing all the work imagine how much you'd sell if you just told them uh, <laughs> here's I, why you should pick you know, us <laughs> I, I often start that's one of the questions i start with when i'm working with a new client i say why do people pick you and not somebody else I'm yet to have anyone give me a sensible answer. So you're not going to be able to work anytime soon. <laughs> That's obvious to me yeah. because most people yeah. are sort of bumbling along in the dark and they don't know why they're winning and they're trying to do a bit of this and a bit of that and a bit more of this and a bit of that, but they don't, they haven't really got yeah. a process or a framework to step back and work through it methodically, which is why I wanted to, which is why I wanted to get you on the podcast so we can share this with more people. Yeah. This is what people need. Like often what you have is the company did really well at the beginning. Yes. And then what happens the is competitors piled into the market or, you know, or they caught up with you. So you had a thing that was really differentiating and then they caught up with you and whatever. And so it was clear at the beginning, but then at some point it became muddy. And, and then the companies didn't, deliberately do positioning at the beginning. It just happened. It was just there. It was easy. Yeah. It was obvious. But then we, you know, now we've moved on a few years and it's less obvious, but because we didn't do a process to figure it out at the beginning, we don't know how to do a process to figure it out now. So my work is really on that. Like my first book, obviously awesome, was here's how you're going to do it. Step one, two, three, four, five, six. You get a group together and you go through these steps and here's the process. The second book, sales pitch is, okay, now you've done that and you want to build the sales pitch out of it. Here's the structure of the sales pitch. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight pieces. Here's how the positioning maps into that. There you go. I call what you do product marketing, right? Which I think is different from product development and is different from marketing. And so what we've got, with the, without the bit in the middle, what we have is somebody makes a thing and over here, somebody's trying to sell a thing, but that bit in the middle is not happening. So there's no concept of maybe over here in the product team, there's no concept of customer or value. And over here, we're just, I don't know, we're running ads without or trying to generate leads or something without this bit in the middle. And, and you're right, that whole process, somebody started the company, that's often the most they were they were in a job inside a large business. They got bored with that and they came out. So they had a really clear product market fit when they started. And they didn't right. die. So it was good enough. You're absolutely that that sort of then it gets muddy. Right. But they had no process. Yeah. No, that's great. So that's what I struggled with. Like, you know, and and I come from product marketing. So when I, you know, when I started, they hired me as the product marketer and they're like, figure that out. And I'm like, okay, somebody's obviously solved this problem of how to do positioning. I'm just too young and stupid to know how to do it. So I went and had, you know, coffee meetings with all the smart marketing people I know. And I went to courses and all this stuff. And there's a really famous book. It's called Positioning the Battle for Your Mind by Reason Trout. And so if you go to marketing school, they'll make you read that book. And that is like the textbook on positioning. And the super frustrating thing about that book, it's an amazing book, everyone should read it, but the super frustrating thing about that book is it told you what positioning was and then it gave you a bunch of examples of the positioning was this and then we switched it to this and everything was amazing. 
but it didn't give you any way to do it. <laughs> like there was no how to, so I got to the end and I'm like, wait, you're going to leave me hanging here, people? <laughs> and so I had, so when I first, is at one point when I was working at a big company, we even tried to hire those guys and I thought, well, we'll hire them, we'll figure out how they do it and then we'll steal their process. But they're sneaky. If you hire them, they actually went away and did it. And then they came back and did the big reveal. This is your positioning. And I was like, no, no, no. I've got like eight products I got to do here. I can't afford to hire you for every one. They were really expensive too, like a million bucks to work with them or whatever. So I thought, well, that's that sucks. And so that kind of set me on this thing. Well, we, you know, we can logic this out. I repositioned a bunch of things, a bunch of ways. And so that's why I eventually got to my own methodology for it. And then I thought, well, I should write this down in a book so that some sucker like me shows up and is like, ah, how do we do it? Because <laughs> there it is. <laughs> you read the book, figure it out. Brilliant. April, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? Well, you know, at the beginning and like the early part of my marketing career, I didn't think you had to worry about this stuff. I, I thought my job in marketing was to get really good at tactical execution. So if I was running email campaign, I was supposed to be the expert at email campaigns. Like I would know how to write a subject line and how to get open rates really high. If I was running online advertising, I'd be all about click-through rates and conversion copywriting and, and colors and things and having, you know, making the campaign run. But what I discovered kind of midway through my career was you know, all of these things are dependent on positioning. Like positioning is an input to that. And if my positioning is mushy, my tactical execution can be perfect yes. and will fail. And when I say will fail, I'll fail. I'll be the person that gets fired. And they'll be like, oh, that stupid marketing didn't work. And so I wish I had a spent less time thinking about marketing and more time thinking about markets. How do we fit in the market? How do we win in the market? Can we really answer that question? And if we can't, there is no point throwing money at marketing because we're building it on a house of sand. Like we're just throwing water into the leaky bucket. It's all pouring out. And we need to actually go back to first principles and say, do we really understand who we compete with? Do we really understand why we're different and better? What's the value we can deliver no one else can? And then what are the kinds of accounts that really care about that value? If we can answer all that, well, now I can write some campaigns. Now I can now I can look at how to go after those people. Now I can figure out what should be in my marketing mix and then get perfecto on the execution of all that. But if I don't get this underlying stuff figured out first, then there's no point. Like I can have beautiful copy. I can have perfect ad execution. We won't make any money. Brilliant. Brilliant. What books should, other than your f books, what else should people pick up? So my my stuff owes a lot to folks that are out there doing primary research on this stuff. So I'm not a researcher. So my stuff is based on the primary research of other people. So the initial stuff that I did on positioning was based a lot on the Rise and Trout book, which is Positioning the Battle for Your Mind, but also on books like The Challenger Sale, which had a big influence on me and the way I thought about how this stuff translates to sales. And there's a lot of data that backing the challenger sales stuff. So I thought that was really good because there's a lot of marketing books that are just kind of people's opinions about things. And so I think if you're going to come up with some how-to stuff, it needs to be based on some data. Um, the challenger sales folks, uh, one of them, Matt Dixon, has a new book out called The Jolt Effect. And that one's a neat one because what they looked at was over COVID, 
they did a study of two and a half million recorded sales calls. And then they did it with the company. So they got to see what happened after the sales call and what was ultimately successful and unsuccessful in the sales call. So that, that book, The Jolt Effect, sort of digs into what works and doesn't work and why are customers buying or not buying. And so a lot of my most in my most recent book, Sales Pitch, a lot of the structure of that sales pitch borrows from the things that we learned in that data in the Jolt Effect. So I think those are good books to read. Ah, okay. So if you've read the Jolt Effect, you should definitely pick up Sales Pitch because it's the what to do next thing. That's right. It, well, it's it's specifically, if I want to build a first call deck for my sales team, what should it look like? Like the Jolt Effect talks a lot about sales process stuff and and tactical things like how should you handle objections and how do you deal with a very with a customer that is very indecisive, which in in Matt Dixon's work there, he talks a lot about customer indecision. But what it doesn't answer is this question of what do we say in a first meeting to try to help an indecisive customer feel like they understand the market better? And so my stuff is really all around that pra- the practical application of that exact piece. Like, how do you build a sales pitch deck? Which is really hilarious because nobody thinks they own the sales pitch deck. Like sales doesn't think they own it. Marketing doesn't think, marketing tries to build a sales deck and it usually doesn't, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't allow the reps to do discovery. It doesn't allow the reps to do objection handling because marketing doesn't understand sales. So they'll heave it over to sales and then sales gets it and goes, what do I do with this? And then they kind of pull it apart or they use their own thing or they do whatever, but they don't think it's their job to build that sales pitch either. So I, I think it's really interesting that nobody owns it because nobody owns it. I think that's part of the reason why we do such a bad job of it. So Jolt Effect, I think, is a good one to read if you want to understand the data underneath it that is like, well, why would we do it this way? Why, why do we have to talk about competitors? The reason we have to talk about competitors is that we are losing 40 to 60% of the deals to no decision. And that no decision, the majority of the time is because it's not because the customer decided that the status quo was better. It's because the customer looked at all their options, couldn't figure out how to pick one versus another because they all kind of look the same and they're worried about making a mistake. And because they can't confidently make a decision, they just kick the can down the road for a year or two years and say, you know what, now's not a good time. So I think we can do a lot to help customer make that decision by painting a picture of the whole market in the customer's mind and then helping the customer as a guide move along to making this decision with great confidence. Brilliant. April, thank you very much indeed for giving us your time today. It's been enlightening. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.